We have come to the end of our sermon series looking at the Lord's Prayer, which means, surprise, we're looking at the last part of the prayer. And to be honest, this morning is a first for me, and hopefully a first for you, because the part of the prayer we're looking at, Jesus didn't actually say. It's not actually in the original Greek text, and a gasp ran over the crowd. Hopefully, this is the first time that you're hearing a sermon that is not based on the Scripture before us, but this ending of the prayer is incredibly important and incredibly powerful, and I'm going to tell you why. So join me as we read from Matthew chapter 6. This probably sounds familiar. Jesus said, pray then like this, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me as I pray for us this morning. God, we come before you thankful that your Son not only came and lived a perfect human life, experienced the joys and struggles of real life, but He also took time to teach us how to interact with You, how to come before You and ask You for the things that we need and the things on the desires of our hearts. We ask as we finish up this prayer that He taught us that we would see and believe that when we pray these words, we are praying them directly to You through Him. We thank You that we know that means You hear us. I pray that this morning we would find the words of life in this prayer. I also pray that my words would fall to the floor and only Your words remain. And I pray this in the mighty name of Your Son, Jesus. Amen. When I lived in Nairobi, Kenya, I lived in a suburb of the town called Karen. And Karen was predominantly filled with expatriates, people who were from other countries who were now living in Kenya. And because it was a predominantly expat part of the city, it was a different uh, village square, a, a downtown Karen, than the rest of Nairobi. There were a couple hotels that actually had swimming pools there. There was a very authentic British pub run by a British family who had lived there for two generations. There was a Barclays Bank right in the middle of downtown Karen, and there were two internet cafes with high-speed internet. This was the early 2000s, so as high-speed as the internet could have been back then. But the largest building in downtown Karen was a store called Nakumat, and the best way to describe Nakumat is by calling it Kenyan Walmart. That's basically what it was. It was just like Walmart in almost every way. When you walked in, there was a fresh produce section right in front of you. There was a frozen foods section to the left. If you went upstairs, there was a spot where you could buy clothes. They had shoes for sale. There was a home goods section. There was even that half aisle, the awkward greeting card aisle that never gets refilled and no one's ever in it, but it is always just about empty. In fact, all of the employees wore blue vests. It was so easy to believe when you were shopping in Nakumat that you were just at home shopping at a Walmart back in the States. Everything told you you were at home. 
except for one thing. All of the checkout aisles led to the same back wall, and up on the, near the ceiling on that back wall was a framed portrait of President Mwai Kibaki, the president of Kenya at the time. And that portrait on the back wall was a reminder that we were shopping and living in a completely different country. This was not, in fact, home. It's easy to forget that when everything around you feels so familiar, when everything is just as you expect it to be and is comfortable and is safe, like so much of the world around us tries to convince us, you're home. This is where you belong. This is yours, your kingdom. And the last few lines of the Lord's Prayer, uh, it's called a doxology. They were put into place as a much-needed reminder that this is not your home. This is not your kingdom. Now, I say put into place because, as I mentioned in the introduction, Jesus didn't actually use this part of the prayer when He taught the disciples how to pray. His prayer just ends after, deliver us from evil. Now, this might give you some cause for concern. You might be thinking to yourself, wait a minute, I've been, I've been praying this prayer the whole time, just some random ending that the church made up, I don't know, like a hundred years ago? That's kind of ridiculous. Well, not quite. It is actually rather old. It has been used by followers of Jesus at the end of the Lord's Prayer for a very, very long time. Yes, the first Greek manuscripts of the Gospel of Matthew don't have this, this part, and those date to about 60-ish A.D. But some of the early Greek manuscripts that date to about 120 to 150 A.D. do have this doxology at the end of the Lord's Prayer. But even earlier than that, we have a book called the Didache, which was basically like the early church manual. How do you do church in the early church? The Didache tells you. And it tells the, the worshipers of the first century from around 100 A.D. It was being used widely by the early church. Pray the Lord's Prayer every time you're in worship. And it ends this way, for thine is the kingdom and the glory forever. 100 A.D., they might have still had access to a few of the actual apostles to know, should we add this? Should we not add this? Is this okay? And they were using it regularly. And they didn't just make it up. It's not like they thought, these words sound pretty good. It all flows really well, and everybody will remember it forever. It comes from the Bible itself. If you were here when we did our call to worship, you heard and got to read uh, this passage from 1 Chronicles 29. In this passage, we see King David praying over his son Solomon, who is becoming king. This is Solomon's coronation and installation as king over Israel. And David prays this, 1 Chronicles 29, beginning in verse 11. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty, for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are the power and the might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. 
These words were prayed by David at the coronation of his son were condensed and brought in to be the doxological ending of the Lord's Prayer that you have been praying with us and probably for a long time. David's use of these words here in his prayer over Solomon and the choice by the early church to add the doxology to the end of the Lord's Prayer, after all of those petitions, ending with a glorious exaltation of God, they also communicate the same thing, David's words and our praying to the person who prays it. They tell us, you are not in control, but you're also not alone. Just two points for us this morning, starting with the truth that you are not in control. I want you to try and put yourself in David's shoes for a minute, standing there in front of all of the people of Israel, praying over your son, handing over the crown to your son who will rule over the kingdom for the rest of your life. David, a well-weathered king, it's been through a lot, seen a lot, done a lot, and knows probably pretty well how to run a kingdom. He knows how to get things done. Could have probably tempted, could have easily prayed, God, grant my son the wisdom and strength to take care of my kingdom. Give him the authority to uphold my power. May his glory grow to rival almost my own. Probably a temptation to see this as all of his that he is handing over. Maybe a bigger temptation to believe it in his heart, even if it never came out of his mouth. And I say that it was probably a big temptation for David because it's the same temptation that you and I fall into all the time. For so many of us, the thought, you know what, I've been down this road before. I know how to handle this. I know what to do. I can, I can get this done. It's so quick to just pop into our minds. And our hearts easily believe that, almost blindly, even when it comes to the things that we've talked about earlier in the Lord's Prayer. How am I supposed to deal with my own failures? How am I supposed to handle it when people hurt me or fail me? I know what to do. I've been down that road before. I know exactly how to handle this. What's my role in the world? You know, like the big picture. Who do I answer to? Do I even have any authority? How do I handle situations where I'm clearly being enticed to do something I know I shouldn't? What is my role in taking care of myself and the people who depend on me? We've said throughout this whole series that the Lord's Prayer communicates to us dependence, utter dependence upon God. And in my sinful heart, I hear that and I think, dependence, of course. I know how to grow dependence in my own life. I can figure this one out. I've been down this road before. I can, I can do that dependence for myself. Earlier this week, we bought a new bookshelf for our girl's bedroom. And uh, Margaret, our six-year-old, asked if she could help me build it. And I said, well, let's take it out of the box first and figure out what kind of bookshelf we're looking at. Maybe it's going to be really hard. Maybe it'll be easy. And so when I pulled it out, I realized it's a classic bookshelf, one that I've built 10, 15 times before. You build the frame, you take the little piece of like cardboard laminate stuff, put it on the back, nail it to the outside of the frame, turn it up, put the shelves in, bingo bongo, you're done. So I said, of course, Margaret, you can help me. 
I've built this bookshelf so many times, it'll be a snap. And so not only am I uh, doing the father thing of showing her how to do it and making sure that she's learning and using the screwdriver the right way and making sure everything's lined up, you know, measure twice, cut once, all that stuff, we're actually building the bookshelf. And so we put the laminate piece on the back and I go and I halfway nail in each of the nails and then she comes behind me and hammers them all the way down so they're flush against the back and we flip it up to put the shelves in and wouldn't you know it, we put the finished side of the piece of laminate to the wall and the rough, unfinished side to the inside of the bookshelf. So we had to unbuild it, took the whole thing off, making sure not to tear it, and I'm getting frustrated, huffing and puffing, and Margaret, sweet, innocent Margaret, asks, Daddy, what happened? <laughs> so I said, well, Daddy just assumed that I knew what I was doing, only there had been a giant sticker on the wood unfinished side that said this side out. Just to clarify, there wasn't a sticker. I didn't mess up that bad. It was easily confused. The doxology of the Lord's Prayer functions like a sticker, though, that tells you, you are not in control. This is not about you and your abilities. It is God's kingdom. All of this is done by His power. And it is all done to His glory, not your own, not by your own hand. I love the way some of the translations, the English translations of the Bible put this doxology. They write, for the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours forever and ever, emphasizing the yours, not mine, not yours, but God's. Or as we pray often, thine, for thine is the kingdom. That is the reminder of the doxology of the Lord's Prayer. You are not in control. And it's convicting if we choose to let it affect us that way. I'm not in control despite what I think. But the doxology also communicates encouragement and comfort to us. Because it also shows us that we are not alone. We are not alone alone. All right, go back to Israel for a minute, right? Uh, Solomon is there as well. David, we've talked about David and what might be going through his head, but what about Solomon? What must he be thinking and feeling in a moment like this? He has to take the crown from his father. He has to take up the mantle of kingship after King David. He won many military victories, he brought the nation of Israel to prominence, prominence in the ancient Near East. Wealth, right? He strengthened their following of God and His laws. Yeah, David did some bad stuff. He did a few things that weren't right all the time, but this is King David, God's chosen king, who will be known throughout history as a man after God's own heart. What in the world must Solomon be thinking I have a guess. How am I going to fill these shoes? How am I supposed to do this? How can I ever live up to this expectation? How can I do anything after what my dad has done? You might be thinking something similar if you've been with us throughout this series on the Lord's Prayer, or perhaps you've just read the Lord's Prayer once or twice. Maybe you heard it for the first time this morning. There's some heavy, heavy things in there. 
it might be easy for you to think something like, evil and temptation, forgiveness for me and forgiving others, not my will, but God's will, God's kingdom coming, not me, God far above me though and hallowed and not present. I don't know that I can do all of this. I don't know that, that I can put myself into a position to be the kind of person that Jesus wants me to be, to be able to truly pray this for myself, to truly allow His words to shape and form me, to not just ask to become dependent, but to truly become dependent. I don't, I don't know that I can do that. I don't think that I'm up to that task. And I hope that when you sense those words, you can feel the, the isolation that can come with this. It feels like everybody else has got this going on, but I can't do that. Everyone else seems to understand and believe all this stuff, but I, I don't know that I believe that. It can be so isolating. And additionally, it can be hard for us to translate what we do and think and feel and experience here at church to the rest of our lives, like Sunday night or Tuesday morning, right? Prepping to go to school in the morning or coming home after a long day at work. It's hard to connect what we've talked about, what you've learned and felt and experienced here with the letdown after meetings or projects don't go the way that you planned or prepared them to, or an interview that falls flat, when your parents get sick and they don't seem to be getting healthy again, when you have next-door neighbors that are just flat-out unkind. The world seems to lull us into a sense of isolation. All of this stuff is happening. It's always been happening, and it just keeps happening, and it's happening to me, and I'm all alone, and I just, I can't do this. I'm all alone. Years ago, my dad's second wife abandoned their marriage. They were in the midst of a divorce, a divorce that he didn't want, and he started unpacking all of this to me. And he said, I just, I'm so alone. I feel so alone, but I'm also just physically alone. I just sit at home all the time by myself, and it kind of seems like it's probably because that's what I deserve. It's what I deserve is just to be alone. And something came out of my mouth that I can only explain to you as the wisdom of the Spirit. I didn't plan to say it, but I said it, and now I believe it firmly. I said, Satan wants you to feel alone. He wants you isolated so that sin feels comfortable. Right in the midst of feeling the pressures of your life, Satan whispers to your sinful heart, you know how to chase that feeling away. You know how to feel better. You know how to quiet that pain. And that is how we have dealt with our isolation since the beginning of our lives, with our own sin, turning to the things we think are going to help us. But the message of the gospel is clear. You have never and will never be alone. God knows your heart. He saw you in isolation, turning to the things that are rotting you from the inside, and He sent His Son Jesus to save you. 
to know you and your sinfulness and to die on the cross for you anyway, to make you His child, His son, His daughter, part of His family. If you are in Jesus, then you are not and will not ever be alone. And the ending of the Lord's prayer fights that lie that you are alone. It tells us, reminds you, you are in God's kingdom. This is not on you. This is all done by His power. And everything somehow is glorifying Him. But He's not just only a glorious, powerful King. He is our Father. He is our Dad, as we talked about with the opening of the Lord's Prayer. And yeah, sometimes He's the kind of Dad who grabs the kid right before he runs through a plate glass window, but other times He's the Dad who goes and picks his child up out of the shattered glass after he's already run through the plate glass window. Just because God is not operating the way that you expect Him to operate doesn't mean He's not there. He is always dad. He has all the power. It is all his kingdom. It is all to his glory. And he is always with you and for you. Now, in a few moments, we are going to be ordaining and installing new elders. Those who have been elected and called to shepherd and lead the congregation of this church. And this seems like a fitting passage for me to be able to direct straight to you guys you three. Because as you think about yourself and what it means to take up this position of elder in the church, please hear the ending of the Lord's Prayer reminding you, this is God's church. It is changed and shaped through His power, and everything that happens here is to His glory. And remember that as you think about how you are going to shepherd His people, because we are a congregation that needs to be reminded of these things, a people who waffle back and forth between pride and self-pity, arrogance and crippling inferiority, independence and hopelessness. We all need to hear the truth of the gospel. We are not in control and we are not alone. For the kingdom and the power and the glory is God's now and forever. Let me pray for us. Oh God, we thank You. We thank You that this is not only out of our hands, but this is in Your hands. We thank You that every moment of our lives is seen and cared for and protected by You. Help us to believe that even when we don't feel it. Help us remember when we try to control things and believe that it's up to us to make everything work, everything fit together. Remind us that it is your power, your kingdom, and to your glory. And when we sit in despair and believe we are all all alone, remind us that we are in your kingdom with you. We are being shaped by your power as you work in our lives. And everything that happens, happens to your glory because you love us, your children. We pray all of this in the mighty name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.